brought to you by SOCOM Athlete. Send me. The Trident is the only device that signifies you and identifies you as a SEAL operator. Every day I earn my Trident, no matter where I'm at or what I'm doing, whether it's on the battlefield or on Liberty, I earn my Trident every day. Thank you for tuning in to SOCOM Athletes Podcast, Send Me. This is your host, Jason, and today we have the honor of bringing to you Mr. Ryan Zinke, SEAL Team 6 Commander, Congressman, Division 1 football player, retired Navy SEAL officer. Ryan also held a powerful position in office, the 52nd U.S. Secretary of the Interior. He is undoubtedly the most experienced leader that we've had the pleasure of hosting on the SOCOM Athlete Podcast. But first, a huge congratulations to SOCOM Athlete student Garrett who recently finished the Special Forces Assessment and Selection course and was selected to become a Green Beret. He'll continue his career on at the Q course at Fort Bragg. A huge congratulations to SOCOM athlete student Henry, who has successfully completed the two-year Air Force Combat Control Pipeline. He has earned the coveted Scarlet Beret and is officially an Air Force Special Warfare Operator. He's trained in halo jumping, combat scuba diving, air traffic control, mountain climbing, shooting. Combat controllers do it all. First there. Also a big shout out to 19th Special Forces Group out of Colorado for recently sponsoring and supporting our Colorado Springs Hell Day event. And now let's bring on today's featured guest, Mr. Ryan Zinke. Thank you for coming on the podcast, brother. What an honor. How are you today? I am doing well and great state of Montana. And if you're in Montana, you're always doing pretty good. Montana. How'd you end up there? Were you born there, sir? I was born here. My family is like five generations. It's kind of kind of interesting. Montana, uh, you know, stacks generations. How many how many generations have been here? But you know, we're five generations. Four generations the same house. I grew up in a town called Whitefish, which is it's uh, been found. But the town I grew up in was mostly a railroad and timber town with a little ski hill. Uh, now it's a destination, but it's still a great spot. Glacier Park's not very far away. Plenty of little lakes and, and hidden gems around it. Great place to um, enjoy the outdoors. Mr. Zinke, you ended up actually going into the Navy. Are you the first person in your family to do that, or is this a tradition? You know, I, I was the first person to go in the Navy. Uh, the family has Army in, in, its, in its history, World War one, but as far as the Navy goes, I was the first uh, Zinke in our in our clan to kind of go. And uh, short story, it was it was I played at Oregon. Uh, I was going to go off the coast and dive uh, because I graduated in geology, so we're going to do some off the coast uh, diving. And an admiral, Admiral Dick, who commanded the Enterprise during the Vietnam War, approached me and asked me what I was doing. I told him we're going to go dive and see. You know, the Navy dives, and uh, I've seen your personality. I know you. You might want to think about the SEAL program. And at the time, no one knew about the SEAL program. Uh, it was men with green faces. Uh, this is before the movies and the books. And they said, you know, it's a volunteer program. You can leave at any time. Uh, he was a pilot. What he did what he'd tell us, as you know, you went through BJ training, which is very, very similar, is that, matter of fact, they have professionals that encourage you to leave. <laughs> They do. Uh, the train, the train was very hard, but once you get through the training, uh, certainly as you know, the SEALs, PJs, Special Forces, it's a it's a brilliant career, and to be around people that are that dedicated and want to be the best uh, was a great honor. 
Mr. Ziggy, I got to ask, as a uh, former Wildcat University of Arizona football player, how'd you end up at the University of Oregon? I mean, they kicked our butt so many times. I got a real foul taste in my mouth when I hear that. It, it's rough. Well, I, I went to Oregon before Phil Knight wrote the check for $500 million. Uh, I played at Oregon when I had Daffy Duck on the side of my helmet. So we didn't exactly uh, instill fear in, in the likes of SC. But, you know, Oregon was, was pretty close to Whitefish where I grew up. Um, like, like all recruits, you, you go to a big Pac-10 facility. You know, they put your name in lights. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty easy choice to, to go to Oregon. I enjoyed, enjoyed the career and enjoyed Oregon. Football player, right, Ryan? Football player. Uh, I think I was the last polling center probably in the history of the NCAA. I started out at, at outside linebacker. Uh, Oregon's a track team. Uh, Montana, uh, we didn't have that speed. So we went, went to Oregon and you see a, a, an individual that one of your teammates runs a 4-2. Uh, as, a, as a strong safety, I made my way in and eventually became center. Mr. Zinke, can you tell us a little bit about maybe your, your childhood and upbringing of how you came from being a small town kid in Montana growing up tough to getting that scholarship to the University of Oregon to meeting that gentleman that invited you to try out for the SEALs? You know, a, a, a lot of it, my childhood, you know, growing up in, in Whitefish, Montana, you know, little, little logging town. My parents gave me a lot of latitude. I was a Boy Scout uh, throughout. Loved the outdoors. Spent a lot of time in Glacier Park, you know, growing up on the trails. And uh, I worked hard. I was one of these kids that woke up at five o'clock in the morning when the coach would come to the gym, I'd be at the door waiting. Um, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed working hard. My family is three generations of plumbers. Uh, so we're, we're pretty a blue collar, hardworking family. And I found uh, football to be uh, challenging and, and certainly at that level, you know, seals uh, it's a team. And, and to a degree, I, I feel like anymore, I'm, I'm the kind of the 2.0 seal and the guys today are like the 3.0 seal. Cause I did, I did 23 years, you know, in the seals and I was a commander at seal team six. And believe me, when I was at seal team six, if you even uttered seal team six, you were out the door. So that, that's, that's kind of changed. And this is before the movies, but uh, you know, 23 years, we trained incredibly hard. As you know, the training's hard. Uh, we were trying to figure out uh, how to integrate technology on the battlefield as thermal imaging was starting to come uh, satellite uh, you know, views and the ability to move satellites for missions was, was just beginning. And then occasionally we'd go to war. Uh, these guys today that come in, as you know, they're going to be at war their entire career. They have mastered technology in the battlefield. The training is still very, very difficult. I think the training's changed as far as difficulty goes. Um, but they're a lot better warriors, I think, but also these guys, as you know, if in Vietnam, if you did one or two pumps, one or two you know, deployments, you were an icon. If, if you did three, you know, you were a legend. These guys today, they might do 15 deployments in a career. They'll spend more time in an average career either in training or deployed than they are at home. And when they are coming home, there's some, as you know, there's a lot of issues on, on integration the guys are, are pretty stressed. There's uh, a lot of anger. And so I think we're using our special forces uh, too much. 
and it's an environment and, and we're having some issues on integration. And then yeah, Afghanistan, we can talk about that too. And I think that's driving a lot of the depression. Question for you, Mr. Zinke. We kind of have heard that uh, selection uh, buds, PJN docs, special force assessment selection gets easier over time. We kind of hear it was harder than when I went through, right? And we always have this saying that as time goes on, we were a tougher generation than the next generation. What are your thoughts on all that? Would you agree with that? Would you say uh, to some extent, uh, do you think we're getting softer as a society, sir? Well, uh, certainly, I think the product out the door, if you look at today's warrior, and again, I, I think I'm a 2.0 version. These guys are the 3.0 or, or the 4.0. I mean, they're as, as a warrior and ability, I think uh, there's never been a better, more talented force. You know, also, you know, special forces, uh, it does take a, a little grit uh, and PJs and SEALs, the, the, again, the, the training is very, is very similar because we both do, you know, underwater work. And, and the high maintenance guys that have always, you know, done well in sports, but they're, they're high maintenance generally don't do very well in an environment that's just tough. And SEALs, special forces, the training's tough for a reason. And, and the reason is, is that when you get tasked uh, for a mission, those missions oftentimes are either never fail can't fail, or if they do unwind, uh, they'll be at the top of the news uh, across the world because America's best has failed. So there's a lot of responsibility uh, in, in special forces. And I think the training today is still tough. <laughs> you know, looking back at it, uh, you know, it, it, the, the guys that go through, certainly they screen them you know, probably better than, than what our generation was, but the training is still tough. The water's still cold. The sand is still there and the boat on your, on your head and seal training, it hasn't changed very much. Mr. Zinke, kind of a side question for you. There's a lot of, of people out there that say to individuals that want to go into special operations that are maybe torn between, should I finish my degree in commission or should I enlist and get more on-the-job experience on the battlefield, maybe running and gunning, a little bit less leading, uh, more doing, and then commission later? What are your thoughts on that and the officer versus the enlisted side, and, and maybe which is more advantageous to do first? Well, uh, from an officer's perspective, uh, there was an old saying at SEAL Team 6 is the officers rent their lockers where the enlisted own them. And I think in the very beginning, you know, the training part, uh, the difference is when you do a push-up, the instructor will say, drop down, sir, as opposed to drop down. So the, the initial training is very, is very similar. The initial training into the teams uh, itself, the first few years is similar. And then it begins to, to deviate. The enlisted become the experts in the disciplines that are required, either demolition or diving or jumping out of airplanes, the enlisted really become the experts. Uh, the officers then become the experts at planning and making the right resource decision to make sure that we push resources either in combat at the front line where they're needed or in training to make sure the men, and in, in some cases women too, have the, the right equipment, the right training, uh, the right tactics uh, to win. 
But as far as, you know, officer enlisted, uh, as far as, uh, you know, the, the slots that are available, uh, it's very hyper competitive. Uh, I think on the officer side, most of the officers now are coming from the United States Naval Academy. Um, so I think out of about 50, and, and don't hold me the numbers, but they're, they're probably about right. It's somewhere around in the low 40s are Naval Academy. Then you're going to have ROTC, which is very, very competitive. Uh, OCS, you'll have a couple enlisted uh, guys that put in their program, uh, their package, and, and get selected. Uh, so there's about 50. Uh, is all and th- those slots are awful, awful hard and very, very competitive. I'd say hyper competitive. On the enlisted side, uh, the the numbers are are more in favor. They're, they probably take eight hundred, probably screen, you know, three thousand plus candidates uh, in there. But the, the the training I think is is very similar in the beginning. The roles and missions uh, separate as as you. Get, get to be senior and the officers tend to be, uh, you know, uh, those that are in charge of operations and the enlisted guys are, are executed. You ended up commissioning and then you ended up going to buds. How was that for you, sir? Well, you know, I, I also ran buds as an instructor and I can tell you it's a lot more humorous on the instructor side than it is a student of, you know, buds itself was six months long. There, the fifth week of buds is called Hell Week. It's generally five or six days of being driven, cumulative. You might get a couple hours of sleep, but you're going to more or less stay wet and sandy. And that's the big separator. And that's generally about week five. Uh, those that leave the program voluntarily uh, generally leave during that period. And then there's the, the academic side, but it's a. Uh, you know, buds is is does what it's meant to do. It's meant to screen. It's meant to uh, to teach, uh, and it's hard. Uh, but yeah, being a, being a seal or or, or a PJ, uh, it's not an easy job. At the end of the day, it is a very blue collar, hard job that takes an enormous amount of commitment. And you're also uh, your teammates are are also hyper competitive too. They want to be the best. And so when you're in a group where the pace is pretty tough, uh, you know, and, and you're also dependent upon your teammate a lot of times to make sure he has a skill set in order to be successful in the mission. So you want to make sure your teammate gets trained and is dedicated and you know, doesn't, doesn't cut any corners because your life depends on, on his ability. So, you know, I love small teams. I've kind of been a, been a team player all my life where football and even Boy Scouts uh, and then in the SEAL teams and then all the way into Congress to a degree, um, you have a voice, but you're one of, if you're going to have the majority, you're one of 218 votes that you have to get in order to get a bill, you know, over the, over the finish line. Uh, that's, that's a lot of work, a lot of relationships and a lot of team building uh, to make sure that we have a unified message, et cetera. And Ryan, you are a big, strong, built man. So how was that going through the course, going from being an outside linebacker, center type, to doing these four-mile beach runs and these boats-on-heads endurance races over and over again? How, how was that for you? Well, the good thing about Buds is there's, uh, you know, you need 60 gunners, too. You need, you need big guys and small guys. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot 
you know, big range. Uh, Brady Duke, I think you, you've talked to. He's Brady Duke is a you know, last young guest, sniper. Absolutely. Yeah. And Brady Duke, I think is, is maybe six, five, six, six. So, uh, you know, uh, being that tall has some advantages in the water, uh, carrying the boat on your head, not so much, but, you know, as far as an athlete goes, I, I, you know, and I grew up in whitefish where I was used to a very cold lake. So no one likes cold water. Uh, but I probably disdain cold water less than some because I've been around it, you know, a lot. Uh, and, you know, being in outdoors, uh, a lot of the SEAL missions, you know, are stealth movement and having an experience of growing up in Montana and hunting, uh, I think was an advantage for me and, and being around weapons. Mr. Zinke, a lot of our listeners are aspiring officer candidates any general advice for an officer as they go through a selection course like BUDS? Well, I would say, you know, the, the, the number of billets and the number of availability is hyper-competitive. But I have, you know, been a special forces commander in, a, in Iraq, and I've worked with and had Green Berets and PJs. Uh, I would say uh, the special forces umbrella uh, smaller teams, no matter whether it's Green Berets or, 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 or PJs or SEALs, I would not center just on one uh, particular organization, but I, w- I would apply for all uh, on an understanding the numbers are, are, are pretty tough. Uh, chances wise, uh, it's if you want to be a SEAL and, that, and that's what you want to be, um, then, then I would recommend looking at and maybe choosing the enlisted path if, if in fact you want to want to be a seal seal officers are are are, are, are tougher and the entry requirements are extremely competitive i mean you're you're looking at a elite darn near world-class athlete just to get selected at soas good advice yeah, and it, it comes at a risk too uh because some of a lot of being a seal is grit and and the training and it's it's much harder to teach character uh, than than to teach a, a person to do push-ups or or to swim or or to run you know i can i can i can do the physical conditioning but really a seal takes i would say hardware you have to have the physical ability but also the software the mental toughness you know part of it so when you recruit and it's, and it's by what you can measure. And it's easier to measure, you know, speed, uh, endurance. It's much harder to measure character. So I, th- I think when, when the SEAL community or any community that's, that is elite, I, I think you, you really have to be careful in your selection program. So you, at the end of the day, the outliners sometimes that may not fit in your best box about number of push-ups or swim times, or as you say, a world-class athlete. Sometimes it's those ones that are a little outliners that will be your best seal uh, career for the long term. Uh, and because they have that something special inside uh, that grit, uh, and they're never going to quit. Mr. Zinke, our military is struggling with recruiting right now. And infamously, special operations recruiting is amongst the most challenging. In my opinion, when it comes to finding candidates with that character, it all starts with recruiting. How do you find guys like you and guys like 
Chief Sanchez that we mentioned earlier, how, how do we find those guys or do they just come to you? Well, you know, it's interesting because across the board, you look at the labor force, uh, we can't find blue collar workers. We can't find truck drivers. We can't find uh, people that want to join the military. We can't find people that also uh, want to be special forces. There doesn't seem to be uh, an, a, an impetus uh, for hard work uh, across the labor force. Uh, and that, that people are, you know, you can, you can get 25 bucks an hour or in, in even Montana uh, at very low skills, uh, but you got to show up on time. So the, the labor, labor force, whether it's in the military or, you know, or doing something else is, is short in the country. Now, how do you recruit those people that are well-suited to a life of special operations? Uh, some is background. Uh, in general, you know, they, the folks that, guys that wrestle, uh, that are involved in athletics, uh, those, those sporting uh, type events outdoors uh, do pretty well. Um, probably rodeos uh, would do would do pretty well because I, I I know a lot of seals that that, that come from uh, rodeo too. states. But you're, you're right; it's 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 a it's a challenge. You know, a lot of it is the the job too. You know, it doesn't hurt when you have movies out there. Uh, Tom Cruise. You know that that's <laughs> Top Gun is, is a great recruiting piece. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a fun movie to watch. Makes you feel good. You, it feels good about being an American. You know, all, all all part of it. But I think that too is is a, is a good tool of recruiting. Um, and then you know, probably talk to people that have done it uh, for a, a living. Uh, I can tell you, my my career, I wouldn't trade it in for anything. Uh, just to be around uh, just brilliant people. You know, I say, if you're going to go to war, it's better to go to war with really good people. Uh, and that's one thing that special operations uh, offers is in time of conflict, you know, you're going to go in with, with the best. 100%. 100% the best. Nobody can compete with the United States as far as our special forces. There, there, isn't, there isn't a force on the planet that can do what we can do. Nobody. Nobody. So a commander at SEAL Team 6, how did you find yourself at that unit and what was the selection process like? If you can talk about any of that to get there and become the best of the best, sir. Well, I can talk about the selection process. Uh, the mi mission set, I can tell you, they're, they're all national authority missions, as you know, uh, very selective and generally have risen to an importance, either no fail or you, you want the very best on it because the mission set's going to be a little tight. Uh, the, when I was in SEALs, um, I did two deployments. At the time, there wasn't a lot of combat uh, going on. There was a little bit of Panama. But the recruiting process was that you had to be recommended. Uh, you could either put an application in or uh, one of the senior enlisted would hear about you and they would, they would ask you to interview. And then there was an interview process uh, that was with the command mass chiefs, generally as senior, senior officers, and they would interview uh, you and then they would take your package 
and then they'd go back to SEAL Team Six, and they would they would ask the teams, "Do you know this guy? What's his reputation?" You know, generally the SEALs are a pretty tight group. Uh, generally, everyone knows either by reputation or or direct knowledge. You know who who who, the, who your swim buddy's going to be, and and they and then they give you a positive, and then you go through a, a green team selection, and of the elite. I mean, it takes just to tell you the, the timeline, right? If you want to raise your hand and say, I want to be a Navy SEAL. Uh, by the time you're in combat the first time, go through BUDS, go to SQT, get get in a, in a, in a SEAL team, then go through a workup process. It's going to be about three and a half years before you're, you're in combat the first time. Uh, then it takes two pumps, generally, uh, two combat tours uh, to be in the process to be uh, selected. And then once you're selected to go to green team, uh, the attrition rate is still about 50% in, in some cases. So if you're a part of, of that group, at the end of the day, you are you're the, the national uh, go-to for crisis force uh, across the globe. And there is an army counterpart, but that's, that's the, the level of training and, and dedication. Look, you know, when you're at, when you're at that command, I think I was gone uh, 220 to 250 days out of the year. So you, you wow. also, uh, that the level of commitment to be gone uh, from your family, you know, you have to look at it too, when you're, let's say the average Individual coming into buds is, is 22 years old or so, a little older than Marines, quite a bit older than Marines. And then the SEAL Team Six guys uh, are it, it, even to get in the training. You're probably looking at now they're 26, 27, 28. Uh, so that that organization is as fairly senior uh, and, and and a little older and likely in their life uh, that's the time they're going to get married. They're going to have kids uh, in that range. And they're going to be gone a lot. That is the tip of the spear of warrior leadership, a SEAL Team 6 commander. Would you accredit that to kind of the cornerstone that has led to some of your success now as somebody who has served in office and is continuing to run for office in other capacities? Well, there's a lot of lessons learned uh, along the way. You know, empower your people to do great things, uh, and they will. Make sure they have the right training, uh, right mission statement. Uh, but there's a lot of leadership at, at SEAL Team, all the SEAL teams and Special Forces that I think applies to, you know, life's experience. Um, you go back to trust your people. Uh, but again, you know, you also have to be on, on a mission. Uh, that mission has to be clear for the team around you. And, you know, you're only as strong as the, as the weakest link in a team. So if, uh, if you hang out with, with your high production guys all the time, uh, sometimes the team uh, may not be as strong because you've, you've you know, I, you haven't put the emphasis on some of the, some of the weaker points uh, on, on the team. I know that there are many, many highlights, sir, but would you mind sharing with us one that you can talk about, of course, maybe a highlight of your career as a SEAL. Uh, well, I'll, I'll highlight a, a good story. When I knew it was time to retire, um, and I did 23, 
And I, I would say I stayed uh, operational about as long as, as a person could in, in, in the SEALs. But uh, we were doing a, a compound raid, and my job was in the helicopter. And as soon as the compound was secure, then I was going to land, you know, walk around, make sure you look at the sensitive site exploitation and, 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 and do what a commander is supposed to do. And if they get hung up, then apply more force to, the, to either medevac or we had a lot of assets in the air. Anyway, that's my job as a commander. It's supposed to be 10 minutes in, maximum 10 minutes on the ground. So it's going to be a very short op. Well, after about 50 or uh, almost an hour in the helicopter, you know, when you're sitting down there, you have all this, the helmet, as you know, you have all the gear on your, on your, on your helmet and your thermos and, and your, your, my neck started hurting and the body armor is hanging on my, on my back. And this is not the, the, the first operation. I think I have 871 jumps. So, you know, like most special operations guys that, that are that age, you know, you're, you're, you're not physically perfect. You're, you're kind of beat up a little. So anyway, my, my back's uh, hurting, my legs are going numb. By the time that the helicopter landed, I jump out, it's pitch black, and I don't see this hole, and I land in a hole, and I do a face plant. And the, and the face plant's hard. Bam. Uh, it didn't knock me out, but it, was, it certainly got my attention. So, I, so I, I stood up, kind of dusted myself off, and I can see the guys kind of in, in front of me, maybe, maybe a few yards, and they're going, hey, the old man's here. And I thought they were referring to the commanding general who also has his helicopter, but no, they were referring to me. So then, then I kind of walk up among them and I notice that they're just a young seal. Like he's in my back pocket. He's a shadow. So I'm, I'm going over there and he's following me. And, and pretty soon I turn around and I said, what'd they tell you? Uh, keep you out of trouble, sir. So now I, now I do the real back. I go, well, when I was a lieutenant, right? And the quote, the old man came on the site. I used to sign the, the youngest guy and say, look, keep him out of trouble, keep him alive, keep him out of my face, keep him busy. You know, and, and now I'm that guy, the old man, and no longer part of the pack. Uh, and the, the pack, I could see they're, they're the new generation, the 3.0, if you will. And, and I was happy to, to make the decision that it was time in my life uh, to retire and, 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 and do other things. Yeah, that was just God giving you a nice, gentle message that it was time to go take on service in the new battleground, right? Well, and you know, and, and then I I came home, uh, retired in two thousand eight. I uh, ran and was elected in the U.S. or the Montana State Senate, uh, and Montana has a citizen legislature. Brilliant! They only meet once every two years for ninety session days. Uh, it really is a government of the people. Wonderful system up in Montana. Uh, and then I ran uh, for Congress, was elected twice, and then became the 52nd uh, Secretary of Interior under Donald J. Trump. Incredible. A, a, lot, a lot of fun. We got, we got a lot done. I mean, on the, you know, we're suffering from energy today, right? When I, when I came in, just so you know, we were 8.3 million barrels a day production and declining as a nation. We were beholden to foreign entities for our energy needs. Uh, we came in in two years. We were 12.5 million barrels a day, the largest exporter of energy on the face of the planet. And we lowered overall emissions doing it. 
and we had the best safety record ever recorded in the history of this country. So you, you can have $2 a gal gasoline. You can make sure you're not held hostage by foreign entities. It is cleaner, much, much better environmentally. It's much better to produce energy in this country, I can tell you, under our regulation than a watch to get produced overseas with no regulation. I mean, today, Russia is at least 41% dirtier on their production of, of, of fuels uh, than the U.S., but it's, it's nuts. You know, we, should, we should be accelerating our production we should be supplying Europe with clean natural gas. We should be building infrastructure and gas should be around two bucks a gallon. Inflation should be at 1.5 and Americans should be feeling good about eating steak on a weekend and watching the ball game without BLM uh, pushing that message. The 52nd secretary of the interior. Is that correct? That is. Incredible. And I did a little research on that position because I hadn't heard of it before. It is a it is a big dog position for our listeners out there to put it in layman terms. This position involves everything from the game of fish to federal parks, correct? Um, Native American reservation. There's all kinds of of uh, well, jurisdiction under this. Right. And it's interesting. Uh, the reason why I was seventh in line to the presidency is Interior is actually the fourth oldest department. So in 1849, it was a mistake then to expand government, but they did. So you had Department of War, you had Department of State, and you had Department of Treasury because you always need money. So in 1849, a new department was formed, Department of Interior. And what cross walked over from Department of War was the Indian Nations the territories that go all the way out to Palau, uh, unassigned property, which was, you know, Bureau of Land Management, the park system uh, off the coast, um, almost all, well, all, all Gulf Coast, uh, other than a couple state assets are fall under in, interior, uh, most of Alaska, and even Forest Service property, which is Department of Agriculture, subsurface, uh, the mineral rights, and all subsurface belongs to interior, about a fifth of the territory of the United States. Uh, interior, people often ask me, why, why do you pick or, or, or press or, or want interior? I said, for Montana, interior touches, or Montana touches interior probably more than any other department. Because as you point oh, out, yeah. it's our water, our park system, uh, a lot of our forests, subsurface, all these things kind of wrap wildlife uh, management, uh, wrap around interior. And of course, you know, Montana has a lot of Indian nations, they're sovereign nations um, that falls under the trust responsibilities of interior. How is the congressional run going right now? What's a day to day going like for you? Well, saving America is not easy. Uh, you know, Running a political uh, campaign is, is always a challenge. Uh, it's a lot of time. Um, what you do is it's like a startup company. Um, your revenue is donors that believe in you. Uh, your product you're selling is hope that we can restore uh, America, which I believe we can. And then it's a lot of it is, is, is articulating uh, that leadership matters. And it does. In my lifetime, I went through the Carter years and I've got to know Jimmy Carter. Uh, I think he loves his country. Uh, not a particularly effective president, um, but it was kind of settled for less during the Carter years. 
Then, then you had President Reagan came in and it was strive for more. Uh, we did a pivot. We won the Cold War. A, a lot of great things happened under under uh, Ronald Reagan. And then, you know, I also lived through Obama years, the Clinton years, and, and the Trump years. And leadership makes a big difference. And this country uh, can do a pivot. We can bring energy costs down. We can bring inflation down. We can we can address you know some of the problems that are that are happening in this country with affordable housing. I, I you know given given the uh, the authority, I could fix energy in a matter of months, and I could fix the border in a matter of weeks. And you know you're you're in Arizona, the the border you know tends to percolate up uh, as far as priorities go, but. But in Montana, the border makes a difference, too, because we get the same drugs. We get the same sex trafficking, child trafficking from the, from the border. But the border, if, if you want to fix it, then that, let's finish the wall where you can. You're not going to build the wall in the middle of the Rio Grande or off the 2,000-foot cliffs in, in North Bend National Park. Uh, but but you, can, you can build most of the wall. But you also have to empower, as you know, the front line. And this is where leadership and I think the military background does help because I never learned much uh, working at the headquarters. You always learn when you go to the front line and when you go to the front line, what the border patrol is saying is they need empowerment to do their job. ICE needs to be empowered for job uh, to go after the bad elements that are in this country. And we don't, we have no idea who's in this country anymore. Now, we have no idea. Uh, but we do know there's a lot of bad people, a lot of really, really bad people. When you're talking sex trafficking, drug trafficking, you know, child trafficking, um, come on, these these people are are evil, and and a lot of them are unfortunately now in this country illegally, and and we're gonna we're gonna have to go after them. Mr. Zing, I know this is a question um, from kind of left field here. How would you have handled? the pullout of Afghanistan, given the information that, that you have? I think Afghanistan will go down as one of the catastrophic blunders and embarrassment uh, with, with perhaps generational effect. I mean, never in my lifetime uh, would I ever perceive that we would abandon our, our citizens. As a matter of fact, we just didn't abandon. We welded the gates shut in Kabul and willingly and knowingly left U.S. citizens outside the perimeter to fend from themselves for the Taliban. At the same time, the Taliban are stoning to death the female pilots that we trained and hanging the Terps that, that were operating with us outside of Blackhawks that were made in the U.S., I mean, that's what that's what this administration did. Uh, and I, I and I do fault the military, Austin and, and, and Millie. I know them both. They're fine officers, but they knew and they got, they rolled. They rolled. But I think it was the Department of State and, and pushing that we would leave Bagram. And we would we would leave, you know, our base structure. And quite frankly, the loss of 13 Marines, it could have been so so much worse i mean it, kabul was a one strip runway very small very small uh taxiways areas you know it sits in a bowl that runway could have easily been disrupted uh, by a mortar round or a loss of one airplane and it, it would have been shut down and we didn't have the capability of rotary wing in 
And the Taliban had the capability to kill every Westerner. Uh, they certainly had $90 billion worth of equipment to do it. Uh, and, and it could have been like the last brigade in, in the pullout of the British Empire. I mean, it, it could have been that scale, and they knew it. So I, I, I do fault uh, both those you know, generals because they're, they're four stars, they're, they're, they're capable. I, fault, you know, I faulted the Biden administration uh, for the, the pullout. And it had consequences. You know, you, you say, well, our, our allies, and you probably heard, our allies don't trust us. Well, I challenge you, do we trust us? Uh, there isn't one department, agency, division in the United States government that has the full trust and confidence of the people, not even the post office. So when you're talking about after pulling out of Afghanistan and we left hanging also allies, uh, in the British Parliament, we were censored. Uh, by the, by the, that hasn't happened like since the War of 1812, right? Uh, so our allies don't trust us. And also uh, those indigenous people that also worked and work with us across the globe, uh, there's a breach of trust there. Because remember, we gave the Taliban a complete list to including biometrics, addresses of who worked with us. Uh, and whether that was intentional or a screw up, I don't know. But, but we did give the Taliban that was confirmed. All that list and look if you're if you're working in special forces anywhere around the globe, and we give a list to the enemies of who's working with us, you know that 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 uh, doesn't go well, as you know, in, in in our line of work. Unreal. So we, you know, how do you, you know, how do we recover from it? Yeah, leadership leadership makes a difference. I mean, we're out of position in the Pacific, and quite frankly, uh, I'll go on a political note for just. Uh, a short period of time is that look, I, I think the Biden administration are globalists and global warming. I think they, they're guiding and navigating this country through the lenses of global warming and, and globalism. And both those lenses have flaws, but they are doubling up on, on globalism. We're, we're not going to lead. We're going to be a member of one of many flags rather than later the West. But we've seen what happens when the U.S. doesn't lead no one else is capable of it. And NATO is a wonderful organization, but without the United States, NATO is an idea without capability. And to emphasize the point, when the Ukrainian crisis began, uh, Germany surged forward all the available forces they had. This is according to their joint chiefs, uh, their, their counterpart. Uh, all the forces of, that they had available, they surged about 150 troops, a few armored personnel vehicle, and a Patriot missile battery. Now, I guarantee you the National Guard uh, in most cities in, in Arizona and most of them Montana have a force that is greater than that. I mean, and that's Germany. Remember, France is not part of NATO. So we, we, when you're talking Germany, that's all they have. President Trump was 100% right. And the NATO countries were not paying their share. They were, let it, they were getting a free ride on it. And, and, as, and as soon as they, they need some capability, they don't have it. So there you have it. Mr. Zinke, between now and the primaries next month, what's your day-to-day -day looking like? Well, I, I, I successfully went to the primary in Montana. So the Arizona primary is coming up. 
uh, which we're watching very closely and um, helping Eli Crane. Uh, just for a, a point of interest, uh, there's six SEALs and five Green Berets that are likely going to be in the House of Representatives uh, this cycle. And when you think about it, that's two fire teams of warriors that won't blink. And as you know, you can't harass these guys. You, you, you can't intimidate them. They'll do the right thing. They're, they're long on courage and commitment and maybe a little shallow on, on policy, but I'd rather have courage uh, and commitment rather than be a policy wonk. But it's kind of funny because I'm, I'm the senior guy and then and I get asked, are you going to be able to control these guys? And I laugh. I, I couldn't control them while I was a commander at SEAL Team 6. But they'll, they'll do the right thing. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited that, that patriots that have given an oath to defend the country against all enemies, foreign and domestic, people that put their lives in the line, uh, not only for the Constitution, uh, but their country and their teammates. It'll be nice to have them in the halls of Congress. When will we receive official word of your victory, Mr. Zink? Well, uh, November, uh, the the, the big day, the big Tuesday in November is going to be, I I think what we'll likely see is we'll see in the House, we'll see a a Republican change of guard and the Republicans will assume control of the House. And then the challenge is going to be the Republicans are going to have to lead. And I would say a leadership definition would be one is investigate what needs to be investigate, investigated, but don't abuse the power. Uh, this last administration under Pelosi uh, leadership uh, abused the power. I think, I think grossly abused the power, shamelessly abused the power. Uh, we should not take the bait. There has to be a difference between the right and left moral high ground and, and, and no morals. So my, my, Council is investigate those things that need to be investigated, but don't abuse. Second point is to make sure that we consolidate a message. Uh, when you're in the minority, it's easy to say no uh, on bills, especially what's coming out of the Pelosi factory. Uh, but when you have the majority, you actually have to stand for something. You have to get things done. That means you have to agree. You have to have 218 votes uh, that, that can, can agree to get things done. So you have to agree as a majority of what we stand for and what we will fight for. Uh, and in some cases, what we'll die for though, those are, are the tenets of leadership. And lastly, uh, a responsibility of the house of representatives is the purse and the house in particular has not done their job in years on controlling the purse. Uh, all this is, is fun and games, but, but if we don't get the budget you know, under control, then it's a major problem and we've already failed. So we're gonna have to get the budget under control, at least show that we can control it, consolidate a message on what we, what we stand for as Republicans and make sure that we investigate thoroughly to restore the transparency and trust in government that is, you know, to our earlier point, that it is lacking in fundamentally a country uh, when, when an entity uh, says something and it's in the government, it should be without political agenda and it, and it should be their best effort at truth.
Mr. Zinke, I understand the concept of a 50-meter target being handled first before you, you start engaging the 100-meter target, but I got to ask, any aspirations uh, to ever do anything uh, beyond Congress? You know, I, I was happy uh, to take the role as secretary. I thought for Montana, uh, we got a lot done. And, you know, sometimes in Congress, you know, you, you, you look at the pace and you go, you know, we need to fix this. We need to fix this. And then you get, a, then you get an opportunity to fix it. And I think when I was in interior, uh, the fun part is we got an enormous amount done in, in two years, which was about a command tour. Uh, on there, but we got a, we, we got a lot done. We fix energy. We for Montana and our national parks and national forests. We put in place the largest investment ever to shore up the infrastructure in our national parks. We opened up millions of acres to hunting and fishing. Uh, you know, we we delisted the grizzly bear that that, that species recovered, and when we brought a Western view, I think back to DC. Where you know you're, you, we live in the West, and I don't know how Washington D.C. thinks they can manage the West if they don't know where things are. I've never been there. You know, I say, you know, how do you think you can manage the Yellowstone River if you've never actually been there and you don't know where it is? And for a lot of D.C., you know, their view of the West or Yellowstone is a Kevin Costner, you know, Netflix, which is a very good series, by the way. Uh, Beth is tough. But it's not reality uh, how life is out, out in the West. But a lot of it is pushing decisions back to the people, giving the states you know, more of a say in management of resources, you know, working with communities rather than you know, carpet bombing from, from a position of, of power in D.C. And a lot of that restores trust, too. There's, there is a lot of angst, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And I think generally, as you know, in the front lines, the further you can push the decision-making, the front line, that better the decision will be. Mr. Zink, I was going to tell you, my wife and I retreated Arizona and moved on down to Florida a couple of years ago, bought our ah, first, congratulations. First, first home down here, brother. So hey, I um, was just with, uh, I was just with, uh, with uh, Ron DeSantis. Matter of fact, I'm going to be with him. St. Ron. Hours. Yeah. Saint you Ron. know, uh, He's very good on, on the stuff. And I served with Ron uh, when, when he was in Congress. Uh, as you know, he was an officer assigned to, to a group as a, as a JAG. He was. He kind of looks, looks like Jack Kennedy. He's young. Uh, Smart, his, squared away, and family a beautiful man. Wife. Uh, he, he, a complete package. I'll give Ron an A, his wife an A+. Plus. Uh, uh, but yeah, I tell you, they're, they're a great package and we'll see what he, what he, what he, what he, what he does right now. His stump speeches are pretty much, I think, Florida based as far as his accomplishments, what he's managed to do in Florida, what the numbers are, what he's facing was to degree is a microcosm of, of the U S but certainly, uh, it rings true of his, his accomplishments of governor. He's, he's, he's done great things. Mr. Zinke, how do we support you? Well, you can go to ryanzinke.com. Uh, would appreciate the ammunition for the battle ahead. Um, and, you know, if you're thinking about, uh, you know, joining uh, the, the military, um, my advice is uh, do some research in all the special forces uh, groups to include the PJs, the Green Berets, the Rangers, 
uh, Marine Special Forces, which is really the Marine recon units now that are are, are looking and they're equipped. <laughs> uh, you know, over time, uh, I've seen the, the the Marines evolve on their equipment too, and 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 now they're they're interchangeable in a, in a lot a lot of ways. These elite groups, and you'll find the best in any of the in any of the groups. And I've had the privilege of of being with or commanding. I think I think I think every group or elements of every group, and there are great people. But if you're thinking about a, a vocation, special operations, you know, my advice is to is to look at the umbrella, and and look at the opportunity that's that's presented. If you want to be an officer, try to be an officer in any of the any of the above. If you want to be enlisted, it's easier to to go in and get a billet as an enlisted uh, in the seals than an officer. But don't be a uh, don't be disappointed because there's a there's a spot among the special operations uh, umbrella for everybody, and that spot you'll excel in. Thank you, Mister Zinke, so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate your time very much, and I know I speak for our listeners. You are an American hero, and you give this nation hope. Anything that we can do to support you, please let us know, and uh, don't forget about me when you make it big. Okay, Mister Zinke. <laughs> well, you know, I've always said, you know, I. I when I was a SEAL and probably a politician and, and in between is I was never the best at anything. I can't, you know, I was never the best jumper, diver, explosive expert. My art is I always knew who was. So you don't have to, you don't have to know everything, but you just have to have to know who does. And that's one, one advantage, I think from a special operations advantage is you find the, the right expert uh, and then you empower those experts to do great things uh, for our country and certainly in the special operations, you know, arena is you can't be an expert at everything, but when you go to battle, make sure the team that you're with uh, is. Well said, sir. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. Appreciate your time. Thank you. God bless. A lot of fun. Thanks for listening to SOCOM Athletes Podcast. Send me. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider giving us a five-star written review. This helps us get our name out there and gives us more visibility. Be sure to check us out on SOCOMathlete.com. And until next time, thanks for tuning in to SOCOM Athletes Podcast. This is your host, Jason. We are out.